welcome to Conservation Chronicles. I'm Jonah, here with Mariana again. Anything new to report, Mariana? Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) No. I have some news that may be exciting to you. Oh, yes. I have confirmed that I have two botfly larvae living in me. (gasps) Oh my god! (laughs) Oh my god, really? Yeah, they're different ages, and the one is getting to be, like, probably the close to the size of, like, a Tic Tac, maybe. Oh, oh, wow. And I don't know what to do, because it's in a bad spot where I can't cut it out myself. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Wow. So. If I were there, I'd do it for you, but. Thank you. I've asked a couple people, (laughs) I've asked a couple people, and they've um, said no. Oh, really? (laughs) My advisor, he's just grossed out. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can't pull them out, you know, because they have a hook on them. Yeah, yeah. You have area. to, like, um, sort of, like, stun them or suffocate them by putting, like, Vicks or something and tape over their little air hole. Yeah. So then they relax their grasp. But Camden had one, and he got one removed. He went to the doctor to have it removed, which I don't know if I want to pay to have it removed. And... He said it took them like 15 minutes. <laughs> oh, God, that sounds horrible. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, no. Ooh. Did they, Do they numb the area at least? They Yeah, they did. Yeah. Okay, good, good. Um, but it's starting to get to the point where it's like starting to keep me up at night because it's starting to hurt more. Oh, no, yeah. It's starting to move around and bite more. Ooh. <laughs> so fascinated by this. I know. I'm fascinated too, but... I just don't want it to be happening inside my body. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just right. imagining like what else it's like the other, what are the, give me the physical consequences of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. I would be creeped out too. If I had another creature living in my body and two of them, I have two. <laughs> oh my God. You two. <laughs> wow. Anyways. Well, if you do get them taken out, you should take a picture of them. Yeah, Camden said he put his in, like, uh, alcohol in a little oh, vial. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and the doctor let him look at it under, like, a microscope, and you could see, like, the hooks and stuff. Ooh. I don't know if I want to do that. Yeah, that sounds horrible. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. So, yeah. Okay, um, moving on yeah. from that um, horrible, yeah. horrible thought. <laughs> um, that's about all that's new with me. Um, should we just move right into news? Yeah. Okay, so we have some good and bad news combo today. Mm -hmm. First one is the good news. Um, for the first time in almost 300 years, Newell's shearwaters and Hawaiian petrels, which are both small seabirds, have been detected on the island of Oahu in Hawaii, which is pretty exciting. Um... Researchers from Pacific Rim Conservation and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service used acoustic recording units in 2016 and 2017 in a project that they were trying to determine suitable seabird habitat throughout Hawaii. And they actually weren't planning on surveying Oahu, but because they were based there, they just decided to throw out a few sensors in 2016. And... To their surprise, they so the sensors picked up the Newell's shearwaters 
and the Hawaiian petrels, which are both endangered species. Um, the Newell shearwater is actually critically endangered. And they picked them up in these in three remote sites. So then in 2017, they sort of decided to put them out more sensors. And the frequency of the calls that they recorded suggests that both species may be breeding in these like almost inaccessible mountain sites. Um, I think they had to, or not I think, I know they had to access the sites to put out the monitors from helicopters. That's how remote and they are up on the mountain. So it's not a coincidence that if they ex- still exist in a you know breeding colony there, it's in this very remote area where predators can't get because as we know, mm-hmm. Hawaii is infested with invasive predators. Yeah. Um, so that's the good news. <clears throat> so that's, that's pretty exciting for them to be found there. And after so many centuries, um, the bad news is really bad news. Um, just last week, a record 8,300 kilograms of pangolin scales and more than a thousand elephant tusks, which equates to 2,100 kilograms, were seized in Hong Kong from a shipping container en route to Vietnam from Nigeria. And the cargo was in this, like one of those big shipping containers, and it was labeled as frozen meat. And the search was only made of the container after someone tipped them off. And the estimated value of the whole shipment was $8 million. Oh, mm-hmm. And two people were arrested, and that's that's all the report from BBC said, because um, it's such a recent piece of news. But 8,300 kilograms of pangolin scales. And one researcher or um, some pangolin expert that was interviewed said, it's hard to tell how many pangolins that could have come from, because that was my first thought. Like, how many pangolins... Does it take right. to make 8,300? But he said because there's, you know, a few species in Western and Central Africa or, you know, who knows where they even originated from in Africa. But this, since there's a few species and they are different sizes, it was kind of hard to, or impossible to tell how many. But I'm going to go with just a lot. Yeah, too much, too many. One is too many, but. Yeah, it's pretty. So Yeah, it's always disappointing to see bad pangolin news just because of how heavy they've been hit it's just yeah and it just seems like it's non-stop bad pangolin news i know it's non-stop yeah um that's you know that's it's one of the like the points of dissonance for people is often pangolin parts like scales are found in these vast amounts like huge amounts in a single shipment and then like people kind of get this this sort of image that there are many pangolins in the world, you know, to, to be able to ship this many and to be able to traffic this many, there must be so many pangolins in the world, but their population has dropped so dramatically. There aren't, you know, enough pangolins in the world to stand this kind of pressure. So. Yeah. I'd be curious. Like, I feel like I only ever started hearing about pangolins and everyone did like when the, it became a huge deal in the media like obviously they've probably been trafficked for a long time but Mm -hmm. i'm i would like to meet someone or talk to someone that did like well people probably weren't doing pangolin research like 30 or 40 years ago but someone who was observing like and remembers pangolins 
like yeah. in Africa or whatever, because I'm just curious if they were seen more. Like to see a penguin now is a, a huge deal. Like I, I am, I've seen, or I've spoken to people that have like d- done fieldwork in Africa their whole life and they've never seen one. Mm-hmm. Um, I got lucky somehow. I saw two when I was there and those people were really pissed at me, but <laughs> I, I'm just so curious, like, cause it's, they're just so rare and special to see now. Like, has it, is it like that because they, their numbers are so down or are they historically low density? You know what I mean? Right. Like, right. Yeah. Never, or have they always been a little never really know. Yeah. Moving on from that news. Um, yeah. Let's get into today's topic. And um, so, so for those of you that are unaware, there is, there is an ubiquitous theme of jokes centered on the reality that um, that we make so little money in this field of work. And talking about conservation, yes, conservation, um, which is what we do when we have work. <laughs> <laughs> and um, if you are unfamiliar with this with this joke. Um, and co- common topic of griping for for conservationists, um, then you may be contributing to um, to this this problem of unpaid labor. So yeah, to, so today it's a it's a bit of a controversial topic um, in the conservation field, and we'll we'll be covering you know why exactly. But it's volunteerism um, is what we're talking about today, and we're not talking about volunteering on the weekends or doing a citizen science project, but it's unpaid labor. So know, joining a research project and not getting paid for it, um, things like that. So, so if you're like us, you've maybe you've probably had no choice but um, to partake in extended unpaid work. I've had several of those positions. Jonah has too, and we don't want to point fingers or make people feel bad if um, you know if you're guilty of not paying, not paying your. <laughs> Technicians, <laughs> but let this be a word of warning. <laughs> yeah, yes, but we do want to expose the issue and talk about some possible solutions, which is you know what we try to do with all of our topics um, when we when we talk about especially the more contentious issues. Um, so we are going to be generalizing a bit, um, especially because we're mostly familiar with doing field ecology work. Um, and it's, you know, the conservation field is really diverse, but of course we're going to speak about what we know best. And I think even with generalizing, I think this is a problem throughout the board in terms of any field work, um, especially when it, when it comes to conservation. Yeah. Um, so just to kind of start us off, especially for, I mean, for those of you that are in the conservation field, you probably at this point already sort of get the idea of what we're talking about. Um, but if, if you're not in the field and you still want to continue to listen to this, um, <laughs> which you should, because it's, these are really important, um, things that people don't realize are going on. Everything that we're about to talk to, uh, talk about, um, part of the reason of course is because it's our, you know, we've experienced this, but also because this also affects the quality of conservation that's going on. Um, as well, which which Jonah will be getting to. Yeah. So I just sort of want to paint a picture that, like I said, we as conservation professionals are generally familiar with, especially if we're field focused. So I'm going to sort of be coming at you from a, a wildlife field standpoint. So, 
you know, as an undergraduate, we're, when you're an undergrad, you're eager to gain experience and get involved in projects that are of interest to you, right? Um, and in fact, the need for experience along with the value of networking with other professionals is something that is sort of ingrained in our minds early on because it will provide us with a competitive advantage in the job market in the future, you know, when we graduate college or whenever, because the more experience you have, you know, the more marketable you are and the more you've networked, the more nepotism that can be, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which hmm, I didn't really put that in this outline, but that's definitely an issue as well. It's sort of Mm -hmm. a weird. It really is. I don't know if there's an appropriate level of nepotism in the wildlife field. Right. I I don't know. Yeah. It's a difficult line to straddle. I think. Yeah. So depending, you know, when you're a student, depending on your level of ambition, you might want to take advantage of every opportunity that comes your way to increase your skills and your knowledge. And for some people, one of the main reasons is just to embellish your resume, Mm -hmm. um, which is a whole other issue. um, Yeah. Because I've seen some people's resumes and they can embellish something they did in a class (laughs) for one hour period once. <laughs> yes, I've seen that too. I've seen that. Yeah. But anyways, I I think it's unfortunate when people's main driving thing is to just build up their resume. Like, obviously, that's important. You should definitely not be embellishing it. Um, but that shouldn't be your driving goal. Like, you should be striving to learn and grow. And anyways, that's just my personal mm-hmm. opinion. But anyways, so, okay, so you're an undergrad, and then you spend your summers doing internships, which is a a horrible word, I think, the way yeah. that it's been um, basically stolen as a word, I think. Um, or you're doing other, you know, seasonal work over the summer to bolster your resume and hopefully, like I said, grow in your career. And maybe this your summer work is paid, maybe it isn't. Um, but that's fine because, you know, you might need internship credit for school. So, you know, you're getting something out of it. It's you're getting paid in credit, I guess. And I don't I don't necessarily have anything wrong with that, depending on the level of the work, which we'll we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. But the point is that you're you know, you're trying to build up experience to help you in your career. Then you graduate with a bachelor's degree and you go, you know, head first into full-time professional work. And it's kind of difficult to get a position. Um, especially, well, I guess not especially, but a lot of times, you know, just regular basic seasonal technician work, mm-hmm. field work as well. Um, particularly work that pays enough to keep up with your student loans or even pays at all. Yeah. And even more so the, you know, the jobs that you want, the sexiest field positions pay the least yet require the most amount of experience and the most investment like time and energy wise once you're in the position, which mm-hmm. is sort of a weird thing that we'll talk about. Um, and maybe you can't get a paid job at all just because the competition is stiff. And so you're forced to either, um, you know, take a job outside of your field of your career field, you know, something that you didn't go to school for, or you're forced to take unpaid work in your chosen field because you don't want to, because you want to be in your chosen field. You want to do what you love and 
what you were trained in. But also you have to have income. So what are you what are you supposed to do? Like you need to be paying off your debt, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've I've noticed a lot of um, a lot of uh, former classmates that I still keep in touch with, like via Facebook from Unity. Say um, they they almost all of them have gotten or are currently in a job that has nothing to do with conservation because they you know because of exactly what you're saying. And I think there's, I can't think of anybody who hasn't at least picked up a job that has nothing to do, maybe one person, but yeah. So everybody has to go through that. Yeah. It's, I used to work at the, in the like alumni in the development office doing some alumni stuff. And, um, it was, I don't know about shocking. It was just sort of surprising how many alums, yeah, weren't in their field, like, you know, their little blurb. I think it's in the mag at the end of each of the school's magazines too. Like this person owns a bar or whatever. And maybe they, maybe they chose to not, you know, continue because that, that I hear that a lot. But Mm -hmm. um, I think that's also a function of this issue that we're talking about. It's hard to find work that pays because it's very competitive. And Then the fact of the matter is that some people can afford to pursue unpaid positions and some cannot. And that's a major thing that we're going to talk about. And, you know, for many people, I think, especially in the increasing subset of millennials, just in my observations, an unpaid position doesn't pose an immediate problem because school debt isn't an issue because their their parents could afford to simply write a tuition check. So they don't have any student debt. And that's, I mean, there's nothing wrong with your parents paying for your tuition. Like, that's awesome. I wish that, I wish that I had that. But in the job market, this sort of creates this selection against people who don't have parents that can foot their bills post-college and during college, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so the significant level of competition in the conservation field then favors this subset of young professionals that don't have to worry about financial responsibilities. Um, And this scenario allows employers to capitalize on free or dirt cheap labor, which is obviously attractive for them because they can save money and, you know, use it for other stuff. And then adding to the issue is the, this sort of recent wildlife volunteer industry that we'll talk about in a while that seeks to profit from free labor by capitalizing on people's affinity to working hands-on, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. with wildlife, whether it's for actual conservation benefit or just perceived benefit, or whether it's, you know, good for the animals or the conservation world at all, or whether it's just people getting pictures taken with lion cubs or something yeah. questionable <laughs> like that, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. so... The student loan, I wanted to say a a bit more about the student loan debt crisis, um, which is what the news has taken to calling it. And I totally agree with that verbiage because, I mean, it feels like a crisis to me. Uh, It doesn't feel like an exaggeration to call it that. Seven out of 10 college graduates um, have significant student loan debt when they get out of college. And by significant, I mean, the average is about $35,000 per student. Um, And $35,000, that's a down payment for a house. That's a medical bill. That's a car. 
you know, these are things that that kind of money just really sets you back. It really sets you behind. Um, And it's just wasted on, on this ridiculous financial system that's out to take advantage of people, um, which is, you know, a whole nother topic in and of itself, but it affects, you know, what we can do. And I don't, I really, I don't care what your political leanings are. College does not have to cost what it costs. Um, You know, luckily at Unity, we got an amazing education, but not everybody gets even that kind of education for, for the money they're spending. Um, And regardless, you shouldn't have to spend that much money. And I wanted to, you know, just to give a stark example, uh, I have, so I have two bachelor's degrees because I'm an idiot. And and, um, I, the total amount of student loans I took out was $67,000 for those two degrees combined. Um, So if you divide that by half, I fall into the average for a single bachelor's. Um, well, that's you're not an idiot because I that's about probably what I have for my single bachelor's. I got lucky. The only reason I actually went to Unity is because they gave me ten thousand dollars a year. I got like a scholarship. What? Yeah. What? Where was that for me? <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand how they. I don't understand the process by how they give people money. Like I don't. Yeah. Why? I, why did I get hardly anything when I my parents my family is. That does not have any money. I, I don't understand. I don't Anyways, understand that there's... either sometimes. But yeah, but no, I, I that's with saving. That's with me saving $30,000 because I got, yeah. I mean, it's insane. And even though the the total amount that I ever took out was 67000 I currently owe over 72000 in in those loans because of interest. Um, so that's 5000 more than I took out, even though I pay my, I pay it. Um, and that's, you know, if that's not robbery, I don't know what is. Um, so for for a young conservation professional, um, which I still consider myself young, even though I'm getting <laughs> up there, <laughs> uh, um, you know, it's a huge burden, not only financially, but also psychologically. And then employers expect me to take unpaid internships because I'm supposed to love my work enough to starve for it. Um, you know, and and it's basically taking unpaid work while I'm being robbed by this other institution. And it, to me, it's, it's, it's a bit of a mockery of what professional passion is supposed to be because to me, your passion is supposed to be rewarded with support, rewarded with the living wage. Um, all the things a hardworking person is supposed to be able to earn. So to me, when somebody says, you know, um, you know, Oh, you should be passionate enough to take this position without, you know, requiring pay that to me is like a slap in the face. Um, because I expect my passion and my hard work, and I do work hard in the field, I expect my hard work to be, you know, returned um, fairly. And it's, to me, it's grossly anachronistic for researchers or employees, or employers, sorry, to continue to offer unpaid, quote unquote, internships. I agree with you that that's not the right word anymore. Um, you know, it, 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 it worked before, in the decades before, but it's it's not a viable solution for graduates anymore, for college graduates anymore. It's just, it's not. Um, gosh, yeah, that word, like I just shudder at that word intern or internship because what does that mean? Like mm-hmm. to me, the way it is, the way that these internships and stuff work in the world now is you're just, uh, yeah, an undervalued, most likely unpaid you know, little stooge to run mm-hmm. someone's errands. And I, I hate that title. Um, and at Texan by nature, the organization I work for, my title is intern. <laughs> um, and 
I had to introduce myself that by that, like to one of our stakeholders the other day when they're like, oh, what's your position? And I said, I'm an intern. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm some like 17 year old that's like working to get yeah. experience. And like, I don't know. Mm. I just, I don't like identifying with that word. I feel um, it's just a gross word for me now. Just the yeah. way it's been used now. I agree. It does have that sort of connotation that you're like this inexperienced newbie and you don't really know what you're doing. And so you have to, you know, you had to be bossed around and treated like you're green. And I take my my work as a wildlife technician, you know, basically, you know, the person on the team who takes the data for the researcher who does, you know, all the quote unquote grunt work. I take that really seriously. And I'm proud of that work because it's an important position. You're helping that researcher um, and you're contributing to the project. And I take that really seriously. And, you know, just to be called an intern, just to say, oh, this was an internship. I think it it, it doesn't nearly touch the amount of work or, um, you know, or e- work ethic you put into the job. So, yeah, agreed. Um, so, you know, the, the conservation field has significantly expanded in the past couple of decades as people have realize the value of um, conserving our natural resources and learning more about them, what what have you. Um, but because the field has expanded, or not, not well, maybe it's because, or it's maybe it's as the field has expanded, competition for jobs has exploded. Yeah. Um, like we said, it's it can be really competitive. So at the same time, there's so many more young, educated people that are passionate or or interested in working in conservation, they definitely are not always passionate. Um, that number has expanded as well, the number of young, educated people that are looking for jobs. And so that's why the competition has exploded. And, you know, generally, again, generalizing, but I'm just from my own observations and the way that I feel, um, the most desired positions are the field-based ones that involve, you know, the very self-indulgent benefit, I will admit, of having some contact with wildlife, you know, trapping animals or tagging Mm -hmm. them or or whatever. Like, that's what we all want to do, right? Like, that's one Mm -hmm. of the things that got us interested in it because that's what we see on TV or that's what we did in classes or something. Mm -hmm. But of course, these positions are the ones that are the most limited, which means that it's where the greatest competition for work is because these jobs are, you know, there's not as many of these kind of jobs, especially when we're talking about like big mammals or something, which everyone wants to do. Right. Yeah. So many jobs and, you know, not just field, field based ones, but especially field based ones are creating stricter requirements for applicants because the competition is stiff. So, you know, by having stricter requirements, it means that you'll have more qualified candidates, um, which makes a supervisor's job much easier. You know, no worries about training some greenhorn. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, but it's also a catch-22 because how do you ever gain the required skills and experience if you don't qualify for any of the basic entry-level jobs? Right. And I see this a lot. And fortunately, I have a lot of experience in the mammal side, but Unfortunately, people look at mammals and birds the way people that treat these subsets of the field, like 
oh, if you do mammal stuff, you're a mammal person and that's what you're on track to do. Like you don't cross over to birds and me crossing over to birds more recently. I mean, I have some experience with larger birds, but I want to learn, I want to maybe do like passerine bird banding or something. And you look at these job requirements and it's like, you know, bird banding experience is a must, which it's like, okay, it's not that hard. Like not that hard. <laughs> our first job was trapping bears. And <laughs> I, I think I can handle, like I've banded birds before, but they want to know, like, we want a list of exactly how many species, how many birds of each species you, and yeah. I'm talking about for just regular technician jobs. And it's like, okay, well, how am I ever supposed to get experience if mm-hmm. I never have the opportunity to get in one of those positions? And a lot of it depends on the person that hires. And I really, really, really respect and look up to the people that um, I've worked with that have hired, you know, people with no field experience, like uh, to be, you know, they hired me and then they hired someone with no field experience. And so they, they thought, okay, that'd be a good balance, but also they want to give that person an opportunity. And I just think that's so important because that's what you should be doing because like, you know, you're, how are people going to get experience at all? Um, if you don't give them that opportunity and, that's something that was great about the bear study. I mean, that was the whole point of the bear study. And I think George Matula being the head of that, that really helped because he was all about that. And that's, you know, George and Brent, and that's why we are where we are now. And that's, you know, why we got so much experience because they were so, um, you know, gracious with us. Yeah. Um, and then this is, so anyways, so this catch 22 of how do you gain the required skills and experience if you don't qualify for any basic entry-level technician jobs. And that's sort of where these unpaid positions come into play because employing organizations or agencies, whatever, realize that young professionals need experience and that it's this very competitive dog-eat-dog field and um, Mm -hmm. especially for getting relevant experience. So by offering experience without pay, they know that there's this select group of people that are going to be able to accept an unpaid position. And then that select group gets ahead with the experience they have, and they have a competitive advantage as they move forward in their career, particularly competitive, competitive advantage with their peers that maybe, you know, their peers that couldn't afford to take an unpaid position. They have the same education, maybe the same experience from working on a same, you know, project at their undergrad university but because they are able, to, they don't have res- financial responsibilities, they get ahead for that reason alone. And this is, again, this is very generalized, but um, I've seen this happen. And the rest of the people that can't afford to take those jobs are left you know, scraping for opportunities while still trying to maintain themselves financially. And it's this vicious cycle. And how do you break it when you have this student loan or you have to you know, pay for your own car insurance or, or whatever. Um, yeah, it's it's scary to think that there can, you know, there can be this amount of classism, um, which is what I would call it in this yeah. in this kind of field. Um, but there is, you know, I, I've, I've known I've worked with people who were worried about getting groceries during the summer, during the field season, like 
who were worried about being able to get groceries, who were worried about putting enough gas in the cars to get to the grocery store. You know, I, I'm like, I'm one of the, um, I'm one of the few um, privileged or spoiled, you could say, because I have um, a partner who supports me financially and a family who will back me up if anything happens. Not everybody has that. And I never would have been able to do three seasons of prairie dog, unpaid prairie dog work if I didn't have that. And, you know, there's a reason I love John, but, you know, he, he would he would talk about how, you know, very few people would come back. You know, he had very few field um, assistants who would come back for another year. Um, and yes, the, the work is extremely arduous, but I, I'm not sure how much he realized that the reason is probably because they they're not getting paid and they can't afford to come back. And, you know, I could afford to come back but they couldn't. And most of the people I worked with were, you know, moving on before the field season was even over. They were like, okay, I need to get the next job and it needs to pay me. Like I took the one job I can take this year that doesn't pay. And I did it for experience. um, And now I need a job that pays. So it's, yeah, it's, and then they just get stuck and then sometimes they'll even give up entirely. And I can't really blame them because people they have to feed themselves. Um, so it's really tough. It's I, I met this one girl who was one of, one of the researchers who worked uh, last year or the year before. And she was um, also one of the lucky few who had her parents supporting her. And um, she was talking about like, graduate school coming up and she asked me what I want to do and I was like oh yeah I definitely want to do graduate school um and I'd like to get a job that pays you know I that's what I said I'd like to get a job that pays and she's like well you know I'm just you know I'm not going to do it with the pay just because of the pay and I'm like oh you sweet summer child you yeah no seriously I remember <laughs> when I thought that way <laughs> I know I know exactly me too and and it's the and it's 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 an idealism and I think there's there can be something really precious about idealism, um, but at the same time, you know, then you get into the reality of the world, and it just hurts. So you know, yeah. it's good to be prepared. Yeah, I keep thinking about my own future <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. um, you know the the jobs that I want, they they don't pay, and you know, again, I if I didn't have my student loans, I could care less about you know. I just oh, want to make yeah. sure I have roof over my head and food like that's all I need I don't need all these luxuries I live very simply Mm -hmm. but because my student loans and you know in the wild I feel it's pretty well known that you know nonprofits and organizations and stuff they don't pay well Mm -hmm. um, even though I think they do some of the most important work yeah yet these state or federal agencies they you know that's where that's where you'll be that's where comfy biologists if you want to be comfy that's where you go to work Um, and I absolutely do not want to work for a government agency, especially in the United States, because I personally, I don't think that, um, well, anyways, I just don't, (laughs) (laughs) I don't need to go into it and (laughs) throw anyone under the bus, but I just want to accomplish other things. And so, yeah, I, I have this idealism and it's just like, what the heck do I do? Um, and you know, I can maybe have a job, and this is what I've had for the you know since graduating college, where I've had jobs that pay enough for me to get by, and it helps to have you know 
field housing provided and stuff, which, you know, a lot of these job postings or job advertisements or employers will say this like, oh, well, it's unpaid, but you get, you know, housing and maybe, tran- oh, you get to use the work vehicle, you know, if you're driving by the grocery store on the way home and you maybe get food or something. And it's just like, that's you. That's not sufficient to get in lieu of pay. Like those are benefits of the job. And in many cases, especially when you're working in like remote areas, those are requirements. Yeah, you, ha- exactly. you know, you, you have to have, have housing <laughs> provided. You have to have food provided because you live eight hours from a grocery store or a town or something. Yeah. Um, so I think those are, that's just absolutely cr- a crap thing for an employer to try to sell is like, well, you know, a, it, you're not getting paid, but, and I've, to be honest, I've found myself, it's, it's embarrassing when you're working in a low paying position or an unpaid position when family members or friends at home or whatever ask you about like what you get paid. Or, Cause I don't have a problem talking about what I get paid. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you try, like, I find myself like trying to justify like, well, but they, you know, I, they pay right. for my food and and yeah. just, you know, putting together this episode, thinking about how many times I've said that to try to, like, make myself not feel as embarrassed so that they're not like, oh, wow, what a loser. <laughs> he has a college degree. <laughs> well, at least he's getting food provided. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. I don't I don't know if your parents are the same as mine. And I'm I mean, I'm not even at an age where my parents should be like, <laughs> like counseling me. Um, I'm like 15 years past that age. But, um, you know, they they keep telling me, like, anytime I tell them, you know, it, this work isn't paying me, they, they put this pressure on me, like, oh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't give your skills away for free. And, you know, that you're just going to get taken advantage of. And luckily, I haven't in a, been in a position where I've been, you know, abused by my employer. Many, many of us in our in our field are abused by our employers. Luckily, I haven't been. Um, but yeah, it's just... It, it, you're right. There's a, there's a bit of embarrassment to it where you're like, well, I don't bring in a living wage. Yeah, I don't, you know, my, my taxes are ridiculous. It's just sad that I even have to submit anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? So yeah, it's, yeah, it's, and that's bad for your morale. And, and when your morale is low, you know, you just, it's hard to, you know, work as, I don't know, as, as much you know, I'd say when my morale is low, I'll still work really hard, but I'll get exhausted more easily. So, and I think that happens to a lot of people and it's, it's bad. It's a bad thing for, for a wildlife technician to be exhausted just because of their morale. Yeah. Yeah. And that's sort of, that's a major downside of volunteering, Mm -hmm. volunteerism. Um, and I, you know, this may be unfair to say, but I think uh, in many cases that the real dedication of a person can come through when they're in a volunteer position. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also can just be a morale thing. So that's also not fair to say, but you know, a lack of pay incentive, depending on the position can lead to you either getting low morale, especially if, you know, there's interpersonal issues or you're being abused somehow, or it can just, you know, lead to this attitude, maybe from the start that like, well, I'm not getting paid. So you know, why should I put in this much effort? I'm just a mm-hmm. volunteer and they're treating me like a volunteer. So, you know, I'm yeah. not going to put in the proper amount of work. Um, I've seen but, that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, it's unfortunate, but I mean, that's what those supervisors get. What, I mean, what do you expect? Because, uh, you know, how do you, it's, it's just so, imagine in any other field, I mean, I guess I don't really know other fields of work that well, but, <laughs> you know, I'm just, uh, no, you know, oh, you get hired, you're, you know, you're being hired for, they're, you're coming on and you are being expected to work full time just as much as maybe like another person that's getting paid and you're expected to do the same amount of work. Right. And that's really bad for morale and that can just lead to a, having a bad attitude. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, requiring full time work and, you know, in the wildlife field generally over time as well. Yeah. from a volunteer sets this dangerous precedence precedent about the value of that employee especially if you're a young professional um you know you they can be looked down on as like you know just a grunt worker their skills can be underestimated their input can be undervalued which i think that's just a, a horrible a tragedy because yeah um everyone has something to contribute and worse even like i said if you're having interpersonal issues especially if you have some egomaniac supervisor um you know the negative things in that position are just being amplified and it makes it worse for that volunteer and it makes them want to work even less um and that's that's a lot of times especially when you have a bad supervisor or something that doesn't treat you well, that's often when people decide I'm not going to put in as much effort. And that's what I've seen a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. But like we've, I think we've already touched on a little bit. There's already these inappropriate attitudes towards young professionals in our field, um, especially concerning how valuable their input is. Um, And yeah, I, I already said that, but that's, that's just, I just, it's just an absolute tragedy because a good supervisor recognizes that everyone has something to offer. And there's already this stigma about young, someone coming into a field, you know, maybe they don't have specifically, you know, the exact relevant experience, but they have something, whether it's just their personality, um, they have something Mm -hmm. to offer. Yeah, I agree. And it's a shame when, somebody might have potential that's just squashed because they're put in these horrible positions. And I feel like I have seen a lot of, I have seen a lot of field assistants and suffered these field assistants who, because they're not getting paid, they're not, you know, they don't feel like they have to bring it all to the table. Um, But I think about half of those had potential that wasn't realized because they fell into that attitude, but they fell into that attitude because their morale was, you know, way down in the dumps. And of course, it's no excuse. There's no excuse to have a bad attitude. Um, you can have a bad day. Yes, I've cried in the field many times. Um, and yeah, that happens. And, you know, you can be excused for an outburst here and there. I've had a couple, but but there's no... <laughs> But there's just no excuse for a bad attitude. And I feel like it just happens. It happens. And, you know, many of those people should just not be in this field. But then 
then like half of them, it's like, oh, that's a shame. Like, I feel like that person could have been, if somebody had taken them under their wing and, you know, offered them, you know, a, a living wage even, or, or even a stipend at the least, or, you know, given them something so that they felt like they were being appreciated, then that potential could have been realized and it never was. So. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And obviously like we already mentioned, another downside is that there's sort of this one way selection of this subset of people for, for jobs. And um, I didn't mention it. When we were talking about it earlier, but there's this great manga Bay article that we'll definitely put in the show notes that specifically deals with this downside of volunteering in the wildlife field and how it's sort of, uh, become a rich person's profession, basically, mm-hmm. just like we said, that because it, it selects for these people that don't have financial responsibilities. Yeah, and this is this is what you know what I would call another anachronism and another irony because um, you know historically science was a rich person's profession. If you look at all the great scientific minds, you know, back in history, back in the black and whites, you could say <laughs> <laughs> back um, before the television was colored. <laughs> Back in my day, um, if you look at the if you look back in history, um, most of those great names were were people in the position uh, in in an af, in af, oh my goodness who came from affluent families, and science was um, a, a discipline that really only the rich could afford to pursue. Um, but it's not supposed to be like that anymore. Like we don't live in that kind of world anymore. What we need in the science profession is more diversity. What we need is, you know, more equity. And so for, 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 for to just to come to the realization um, and, and just to harbor, you know, these thoughts that we have that, that science just feels like a luxury, like a rich person's profession, that's sad to me because it's not supposed to be that way. We were supposed to have moved past that, you know, to, to, you know, a more equitable profession where, you know, all you need is, is ambition and passion and, and you can be part of the team and you can do your, what you need to do for conservation. Um, but it's, you know, the socioeconomics is, is really bad when it comes to this. And, you know, I mentioned the word classism earlier, which can be triggering for, for some people, but it is classist and, and it's absolutely. And, so, yeah, I, and and it also, you know, we talked about this a little bit, you know, being embarrassed to tell our families or, or just trying to explain the complexity of, you know, how we're getting paid or the amount of work we put in. And it, it also kind of hurts your standing in society because, you know, we everybody has a status, unfortunately, um, but everybody does. And if you're not contributing to society, you know, economically, people look down on you. And so that's also, that's just also another, another point, point of bad morale. Um, we already know that many, many college students are homeless and our field is no exception. And I, I mean, in our field, I, 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 I knew a lot of students who, you know, had trouble feeding themselves. So it's pretty sad. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So sort of want to talk about another 
understand the downside of volunteering. It's sort of, it's actually, I think it's could be considered one of the origins of mm. this volunteering epidemic. Um, and there's actually a really good paper that we'll provide the citation to, but you have to, um, you know, ha- like pay for the paper. Is it behind a paywall? <laughs> or, well, I'm, since I'm a student, I can view it, but I couldn't figure That's out like so how to ironic. upload the PDF onto our website. <laughs> so if Mariana can figure that okay, out, maybe we could to, share it. Yeah, I might be able to figure out, figure it okay. out. Okay. Yeah. Well, if not the citation, the, <laughs> the, um, citation for the paper will be in the show notes, but it's from the Wildlife Society Bulletin, and it's from 2015, and I'd never seen this paper before. Mm. But it sort of um, discussed some of the issues that we're talking about in a less um, uh, opinionated way. Mm-hmm. And it they sort of did like a mini study where they sampled job openings, um, and 38% of the job openings that they sampled were unpaid, which I think is a shocking statistic. Like. Wow. 38%, that's a, that's a lot. That's, that's more than a third of jobs for in on in the conservation field were unpaid. That's that's so unacceptable. That's egregious. Um, and I think this, well, again, sets this dangerous precedent, but it demonstrates the priorities of employers. Um, and some employers just don't recognize that everyone's time is valuable especially if they've worked hard to meet job requirements, whether it was in other positions or in school. And, you know, I've done all this work. I got a freaking college degree. Mm-hmm. I did all these other jobs to get experience. And I have completely relevant experience, but you don't want to pay me for it. Right. Um, and this this article actually provided a really great quote, I think, for this issue from um, former U.S. Vice President Joe Biden. He said, don't tell me what you value. Show me your budget and I'll tell you what you value. <laughs> and I think it, it just rings so true because, especially in my experience, many projects I've worked on have made me feel undervalued um, on the basis of low salaries like i was had a low salary but then unnecessarily high spending on the project um i one of my worst experiences just all around was working trapping otters for southern illinois university in carbondale i will totally throw them under a bus because they are just an unethical (laughs) have an unethical wildlife department and just be warned um but we were you know trapping otters which required you know seven days a week checking traps two times a day and we had a really low wage something like eleven dollars an hour um and you know whenever i would whenever we were having to buy supplies or equipment or whatever i was always trying trying to be frugal because that's just how i naturally am because why spend more money when you don't have to and mm-hmm. i'd always get this response oh well, don't worry about the cost the project you know we have so much money we don't know what to do with it so don't worry about that and wow. that was just so that ignorantly honest (laughs) comment you know just made us feel like crap it made us feel like we weren't valued because if you have that much money then why can't you pay us more than someone that works at burger king right yeah (laughs) um and that's not the only position that i've experienced that with where it's just this absurd spending just unchecked spending 
yet you can't afford to pay me more. Um, and it, I think it demonstrates and it's, it's an origin of this issue because it budgets are just so poorly made and managed on the upper, you know, in upper level positions because these upper level professionals, they are undervaluing lower level people. Um, I mean, and I've just heard so many comments before about, oh, you know, some dumb tech and stuff like that, not like directed at me, but talking about other people and Mm -hmm. okay, just because someone doesn't have as much experience as the other tech or as much experience as you, like you don't need to treat them that way. They still, they're still helping you. They're working there for you. And when it's a entry level, supposedly entry level job that requires a bachelor's degree and you know, how to operate a GPS, what do you expect? Like, that's why it's an entry level job. Um, And you know, this, issue also originates from the fact that a lot of funders aren't willing to pay for salaries or stipends for employees. They're just interested in paying for, you know, some sexy equipment or some other field expense. And they'll write this on, um, like, you know, grant eligibility or or whatever. And that's what I, you know, I've been going, I've applied to, uh, gosh, probably close to $200,000 worth of grants for my Settable project now. And they always say, will not fund stipends for field crew or will not fund um, food for, well, food, that, that doesn't matter. <laughs> That's irrelevant <laughs> to what we're talking about. It's dumb, but won't fund salaries or stipends. Yeah. It's just like, okay, none of you guys will fund that. So what do you, where am I supposed to get that? Mm-hmm. And um, I won't elaborate on how I get around that but um you know all the money is going into the same pot so you know you just maybe need to tell your funder okay yeah sure you paid for this but it's less like I'm not tracking where the exact dollars that you went in you know generally they they don't require that yeah um it's all being spent on the project and this in my entire budget so you can here's my entire budget this is what it's all being spent on Mm -hmm. do you want me to say that you bought the radio collars or something like to so that you can market that like it's just it's just an ignorant thing on the part of these funders and it it can be an origin of this issue because just like joe biden said show me your budget to show you to show what you value because if you know that funders aren't going to pay for stipends then or you know stipends that are only 500 dollars or something then that's all you're going to put you're going to make it the least amount possible and i find myself having to do that for you know what i'm going to get paid over the summer it's just like, okay, what's the least amount that I feel I can get paid because, or maybe I won't get paid at all if I don't get enough funding. Like, that's yeah. just so horrible, you know? Yeah, I I agree. You know, if it, not only just if you're hiring and making the budget yourself, also if you are a source of funding, if you're a funder, you need to value that too. Not valuing, uh, not valuing that. I mean, it's it's like, it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, you you value your equipment, don't you? Do you just do you work with broken equipment? No. <laughs> Does your equipment do the job for you? No, I do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So to be less valued than your equipment, you know, in terms of dollars, you know, that translates so the dollars that they put into you, the value that they put into you in your budget translates um, most of the time. Um, I shouldn't say always. There are some exceptions. John was an exception. Um, 
but most of the time it also translates to the the value that they see in you as the field assistant. So, yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I think I, I sort of already mentioned this, like when I was talking about, you know, getting experience for bird banding, um, vaguely touched on it, but I've also noticed sort of this theme of discrepancy in pay among petition in among positions, particularly when we're talking about jobs that are focused on different taxa. So, um, you know, why is it that you look at a job that's to trap some carnivore, let's say like to trap otters, that's $11 an hour. But then you look at some bird banding job and they get paid $22 an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, not to like undervalue what, what they're doing, but I think that um, it's going to be a lot more difficult work to try to trap otters or trap some large mammal or whatever and then to do bird banding. And it also requires a lot stricter um, qualifications generally because it's it could be more dangerous or it requires a certain skill set. So how is it that consistently I see these large mammal jobs getting paid like half as much as these these bird survey jobs or bird banding jobs that um, are just you know so much more straightforward and simple mm-hmm. and. I'm, you know, I'm sure that some of this has to do with, okay, you know, when you're making a, um, a budget for some mammal project, yeah, the mammal collars cost a lot. It doesn't cost that much to do the field work for bird surveys. So you can, you know, more budget money can go towards paying people, but there's also so much money out there for mammals because we just love to study them to death. Mm -hmm. So if you asked to get, you know, if you budgeted and requested a little bit more so that you could pay your um, technicians more. I doubt that the grant, the funder is going to, you know, deny it. They want to be, they want to say that they're funding this, whatever, bear project or something. So I don't think that it, you would get denied funding for asking your technicians to be paid a little bit more. And I've, so many times I've heard these like ridiculous excuses about why they can't pay us more like legally. And like, I just don't buy any of it because it was just like, yeah, it was just ridiculous. And then when you see these other jobs getting paid $22 an hour, but also I think even more so than, you know, the whole budgeting issue, it has to do with the fact that the competition for these, you know, sexier quote unquote mammal jobs is so much greater. And the supervisors, employers, hirers, whatever, they know that it's more competitive and they know that there's so many more people that are going to be willing to work for less or nothing at all to, you know, have these most sought after jobs. And so, um, that's, that's just wrong because they're exploiting that, Mm -hmm. that understanding that there's more competition for this and they know they're, they're basically, um, not promoting, I don't know what the right word is, but like, allowing this classism to happen because mm-hmm. they know, and I, I mean, I, I firmly believe this, whether it's a subconscious thing that these people are budgeting or not, it, it's just so clear to me and what I've observed that this is the case that they know that people are going to be willing to work for less because it's such a cool job and they're going to get so much more experience out of it or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, I've seen, um, I've seen some some of the salaries I've seen offered for like low skill level bird jobs 
are more than I expect to ever even make at the rate I'm going. <laughs> so you you know you would think that some you know trapping mountain lions or bears something that's like a huge deal that they would be getting paid a lot. And I'm not like you know advocating this difference in pay. It just yeah. There's this huge discrepancy, and I, it doesn't make sense at all, logically or financially or even morally, if you want to go that far. Yeah, you're putting a lot more effort. And, and you know, we're not saying that, you know, bird banders, you know, aren't important, but you're putting a lot more time and physical labor into things like trapping mountain lions. I mean... <laughs> For the amount of time you put into trapping a mountain lion, a single mountain lion, you could catch a hundred birds. And so, yeah, it is, I agree that there's a discrepancy there and, and the pay should be more equitable. And yeah, these people are complicit when they don't even, they don't even care to think about how equitable the pay is. Yeah. And then like, uh, I think in a lot of cases, it could just be something that pe- people don't think about any of this stuff that we're talking about. And that's that's the issue. Um, people generally don't think past the end of their nose, unfortunately, and that's just the cynic in me, but it's also the reality of it. And so these employers, they're not thinking about this kind of thing. They're thinking about what's the easiest and cheapest way to have their project get done, mm-hmm. where they can get the most out of it. And um, but I you know, I hope that we're calling these issues out so that people can think about them more and of course the right people are not going to be listening to our podcast (laughs) but um people just need to be more outspoken about this because it's it's just a real shame um for everyone involved Mm -hmm. um and then there's sort of this uh other genre of volunteering work that we haven't touched on but it's a pretty big one that i think we both have a lot to say about um Mm -hmm. So in case you're unaware, we've been talking about, you know, actual um, jobs, whether they're paid or not. But there's these other positions, if you want to call them that, in which you have to pay to quote unquote volunteer, which that's not, you're a customer, you're not a volunteer, you're a customer. Um, And, you know, to give an example, a lot of these kinds of programs or whatever you want to call them are in from what i've observed most rampant in south africa because they don't know what they're doing with wildlife (laughs) in my opinion um or like central and south america places where there's like a lot of wildlife and um easily viewable wildlife it's i don't think it's i've ever heard of it as being a thing here in the states Mm. but Basically, where you you pay to go volunteer, whether it's with a sanctuary or whether it's like you pay to go volunteer to help some researcher, researcher, maybe quote unquote, maybe they're not an actual researcher. That word has been (laughs) robbed as well. And to go out and like whatever, set up camera traps or something. And you're basically paying for this experience to say that you've done research or something. Yes. And I say that that word research or researchers has been robbed because, um, you know, people that put out camera traps like in their backyard just to see what well, wildlife is there think that they're researchers. I remember <laughs> I remember one time Leon and I were watching this um, ridiculous like monster hunter show on Animal Planet, you know, one of those ridiculous things. Oh, and it was yeah. like 
the skunk ape or something. And <laughs> they were interviewing some guy who was obviously like crazy. And just below, like on Animal Planet, his below his name, the title just said researcher. <laughs> <laughs> and we always joke about that. And it's, it's hilarious, but it's also unfortunate because yeah. people don't understand what research is because people don't understand what science is. And so people will buy into these programs where they pay thousands of dollars for just like one week in some cases Mm -hmm. to go and do research. And then they put that on their resume saying that, oh, I did research on whatever leopards in South Africa. And that's just like, talk about embellishing your resume. But these kind of programs are just, they're dangerous because um, one reason they're only being valid, like, you know, those volunteers and the work is being valued because it's a way to make money. Um, and also, again, it's selecting for these people that can afford to go pay for these experiences, which mm-hmm. is just, it's ridiculous to pay for an experience to put on your resume. Like, Yeah, that's not work experience. That's tourism. Yeah, that's e- that's ecotourism. Yeah, exactly. It's a that's new exactly form of that it is. that's weird. Yeah, that's, what, that's all that is. Uh, that's not, yeah. That's a shame. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about it that way for some reason. It's that's what it is. It's ecotourism. It's and not a lot even, of times. Yeah, go ahead. A lot of times, it's um, that there's you know there's lots of different ones. The way that I often see them posted is like carnivore research, South Africa, and I'll just like read, <clears throat> I'll just read the description. I'll be like, oh my gosh, this is not carnivore research. <laughs> I feel so bad for the people that are. Applying yeah, to this. Yeah. Remember, you remember Catherine Chapman? Uh-huh, yes. <laughs> she oh, she did one in South Africa, and I wish she could tell you the story. Um, because it was an absolute joke. Like, oh, no. the guy, they would just ride, like, in the back of some safari vehicle with this guy who he was doing research, quote, unquote. And he just, like, basically wanted to look at and take pictures of leopards in Kruger National Park in South Africa. Oh, my God. And... She obviously she got duped, and she's definitely willing to admit it. Yeah, because she'd be like his research, his data collection was just like writing notes, like rolled over, (laughs) (laughs) turned head, and he was like, and he was asking us to do this for him, (laughs) like and selling it as research. Oh my god! And that's like a that's an completely that is just a perfect example of what these programs are like. Yeah, or they're in these like wildlife sanctuaries that are in my opinion questionable especially in south africa with like all these lions and stuff Mm -hmm. where you get to go and you know see wildlife up close um or you know even more importantly to some people um you know interact with them and there's these especially these like lion farms in south africa where oh these interns or volunteers or whatever they pay and then they say oh well that pay is going towards you know, keeping these lions alive, and then really someone's just doing a canned hunt when they grow up. Oh yeah, um, yeah. But they're they're just you know I've seen these in documentaries where they're just they're just cuddling with the lions and they're bottle feeding them and they're paying and we're doing conservation work or I'm doing research on the diet of this lion or just abs- absolutely absurd things that any real scientist would just cringe at. And these programs in these places are just capitalizing on this because they know that people will pay to go see wildlife up close and touch them and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So those things are, are those kind of programs are very dangerous. You should not be paying 
to work somewhere or paying to volunteer. It's one thing if you're like, you know, I've had to pay to get to Africa to, you know, get to my job there. Mm-hmm. But um, to pay to work for someone or to pay to volunteer for someone, uh, that, yeah, that's that's not work. Yeah. Yeah, we, we definitely encourage encourage people not to fall into that trap. You know, the, it, I find that there's some value in, in sanctuaries when they work right. And that's a whole nother episode. But this is not, this is just a, a business that they're trying to, you know, capitalize on free labor. And that's not, that to me is not a, a, an actual sanctuary. That to me is just, you know, the sanctuary is just the face of, you know, a business trying to make money. Yeah, and uh, I think equally as important, they're, you know, in this process, they're sort of stealing, a lot of times it's young people, but it's not definitely not restricted to young people, stealing these people from the reality of conservation work. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. what is real conservation work? Um, and that depends on the sanctuary. Because you can definitely go and just flat out volunteer at one of these sanctuaries in Africa or South America, whatever. Um, and, you know, maybe it, it they're actually doing something or, you know, there's nothing wrong with going and volunteering at some rehab facility or, or whatever. But these these places that have this as like a, their business model for making money to pay for the facility or something, it's just, um, it, it shouldn't be allowed. It's criminal. Oh, I have something to say about sustainability, actually. I just thought I just thought of it. I don't know if they should go into the sustainability tip or not. But, um, you know, we we were talking about budgets and um, I made that quick but serious remark about, you know, valuing your tools or equipment more than you value your people. You know, I've found that um, I've, I've been, I've either participated in or witnessed uh, researchers or field projects where they're not very sustainable about certain things. And they actually waste a lot of money, first of all, by just tossing something that could be fixed and buying a new thing or in fuel. My God, the the amount of money a lot of field projects waste in in unsustain non sustainable fuel or just like running their cars, you know, even little things like that. I know that that's in the budget. Like, oh, we have to budget for all this equipment. What you're really budgeting in for half of that is you're budgeting for waste. And if you if you are more sustainable in not only the equipment you you use but how you use it and if you just if you were just more mindful of that, you could save money, and that money you save could be put into paying paying your 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 technicians. Yeah, that is that is so true. Yeah, I've totally seen the same thing. Um, yeah. You know, gosh, yeah, and that that definitely stems from the employer supervisor, or whatever, because obviously, but also it. Um, you know, some technicians, employees or whatever, they might not be thinking about these things. So I, I don't think I've ever gone onto a project and they, you know, in orientation or, or whatever, they talk about like, you know, um, 
avoiding waste or just being conservative with yeah. equipment or gas or whatever. And like, yeah, it's, I understand like a lot of these projects, you're driving around your study areas all yeah. over. You're going to be using a lot of gas, but like, um, gosh, I can just think of so many unnecessary trips that have been made on, yeah. on projects and stuff. Yeah. And it's just like, oh yeah, well our project has a bunch of money and, um, it, it's fine and actually that's that's happened on that otter project like oh well, we don't want to drive up an hour to the campus so we'll just wait till the next time you're down here for you to bring it no it's fine like we have enough money for gas uh, yeah and it's just like wasteful um yeah okay yeah no that's a, that's a really great point um that's a good solution for this um yeah Man, I kind of want to. I want to go back to that nepotism topic at some point. Mm-hmm. We should because that's that uh, that also really affects not only the um, the the work, but also quality of work, and uh, it it also really narrows the pool, like you were saying. Yeah, the um, classism. Yeah, yeah, it exactly. becomes this little club, which it definitely uh-huh. is because it's still a very small world, like yeah. our field. You know, everyone knows each other, but. Um, the extent to which nepotism occurs, um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah. Anyways, okay. Um, so today's sustainability tip, I know I've definitely sort of alluded to this or mentioned it briefly on several other occasions, but it's never been an outright sustainability tip. So um, one way to reduce plastic is to just avoid plastic wrapped foods, you know, like prepackaged stuff. And buy from the bulk section, particularly when we're talking about like beans and nuts and grains. Um, You can use cloth bags to do it. Um, Different grocery stores have different. Some grocery stores have where if you like put it in a mason jar, they can tear it or subtract the weight of like the average 32 Mm -hmm. ounce mason jar or something. Generally, I have not found that, but some places have that. So you can use like a cloth bag or something. Um, And actually what I do, just not to get into too much details of it but i think i'm just super clever with it <laughs> is the first so i you know i okay i'm gonna just explain this process because i i'm just proud of it i <laughs> fill up a mason jar of walnuts let's say to exactly how much like fills to the very top of the lid i pour it in my cloth bag i weigh that mm-hmm. cloth bag and then you know it prints out a sticker or whatever mm-hmm. i put that sticker on the mason jar and that becomes my walnut jar So every time, because then it's the same exact price every time because you're filling it to the top with walnuts. Right. And then every time I go, I just fill it up. And I've, you know, I've been using this sticker since I moved here to Texas. And the, you know, it's not like the barcode expires. And maybe when they raise the price, I won't notice and I'll pay less. (laughs) I'm just just kidding. (laughs) But then you can just fill up the mason jar every time you just bring it back. um, Or you can use a cloth bag or, or whatever. But it's just a good, I think it's a good obviously a good way to avoid like the plastic bags that they offer in the bulk section, um, which I think defeats part of the purpose in buy- of buying in bulk. Yeah, it does. But it's also a good first step in reducing plastic overall because I think it, at least for me, it forced me to think about where else I can cut back on plastic mm-hmm. um, in, in just other, other regards. So I think it's just, it's a, a good step to take early on because it makes you um, more cognizant of the the waste that you're making. I guess in closing to our listeners, if you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. 
Uh, so feel free to connect with us on Facebook or Insta- <laughs> Instagram. I keep wanting, even though it's written Instagram now, I still keep wanting to say Twitter. I don't. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But it's Instagram at Conservation Chronicles. And you can email us at conservationchronicles at gmail.com. Please do email us. We, we really enjoyed that one uh, listener email we got. And we would love to have more listener emails. Um, so whatever you have to say, you can you can email us. Or or if it's short and quick, you can you know send it to us on Facebook. Um, and of course, our website is www. Who said that anymore? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Who says that? There's probably like young kids that are like, "What does www. mean?" <laughs> and I remember when people didn't even understand like what is the internet or what is that what is that a with the tutorial what does that mean to be honest i still don't understand the internet like yeah you don't actually have to type in www w w w dot three w's there you don't have to type that in anymore yeah but why do like why don't you have to type it anymore why did you used to have to type it i know and what about the http thing like what's that all about i have no clue Anyway, our website is conservationchronicles.podbean.com. <laughs> yes, cool. Yeah. Okay, bye everyone. Bye everyone. <laughs>